Welcome to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and oftentimes nonsensical way pop culture and nuclear weapons interact. At times, we'll wax poetic about what a piece of art may tell us about how we, as a society, connect with the existential horror posed by weapons of mass destruction. But most of the time, we just end up making fun of stuff. As always, you can listen to the show wherever you normally access your podcast, the iTunes, the SoundClouds, the Google Plays of the world and the like. And we also have a new website that we uh, are proud to say that we have, uh, which is supercriticalpodcast.com. This is a place you can go to and get all the episodes and other additional content, and we'll be talking more about that on our next uh, full-length episode, because what we're doing today is another one of our mini-nuke episodes. Uh, Instead of spending two hours talking about an entire movie, which is about nuclear weapons, we find a a film or a TV show that has just a slice of pop culture and nukes in it, and then we like to overanalyze it. My name is Tim Westmeyer, someone who studies nuclear weapons and works on nuclear security for a living, and I'm joined by my highly respected co-host, Joel. How's it going? Good to talk to you, Tim, and uh, super critical listeners. It's good to be back in the saddle. Great. Glad to have you here, Joel, but uh, I have to be honest, um, I'm feeling a little confrontational today. Uh, we've had some serious disagreements about the movie that we're going to talk about tonight because it's Tim versus Joel to talk about Batman versus Superman, The Dawn of Justice, the 2016 comic book action movie, which the poster asks us to think about who will win? That's a central <laughs> question. Who will win? That was, that was pretty clear marketing right there. Yes. Who who will win in this epic battle of Batman versus Superman? They should have just put a question mark at, at the end of it. Batman versus Superman? <laughs> yep. Uh, the director for this film was Zack Schneider, who directed one of, one of our favorite movies, 300. Uh, but he mm-hmm. also is known for another number of movies like Watchmen and Man of Steel, which is the original part i guess i guess the first of these series i don't know if this one necessarily is a sequel to uh man of steel that counts as, uh, a, new, as a new series yeah I, w- I would say it is i mean in the same way i mean it's a little easier to say it's a sequel because it's the same director but as i understand i mean it was clearly part of their broader universe uh you know so in the same way that captain america and then iron man and you know all those movies to the extent you can call them sequels, yeah. Okay. Well, there's a bunch of uh, new people and old people in this movie from the previous one. Big new guy is Ben Affleck, is Batman, Bruce Wayne. Spoiler, Batman is, is Bruce Wayne. Uh, Henry Cavill is uh, Superman, Clark Kent. We got our, our Amy Adams as Lois Lane. We have our Diane Lane as Martha Kent. Jesse Eisenberg as the villain Lex Luthor. And Michael Shannon as the lifeless corpse of General Zod. Pretty good gig he got for that film. Just pretty much had to lay down and take a nap and made a couple, probably a couple hundred thousand dollars. But this movie is interesting because it had a bit of mixed reaction. The The critics didn't like it. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes gives it 27% rating. Uh, Metacritic gives it 44. Um, but Joel and the general moving going public seem to like it. It made $870 million worldwide on a $250 million budget. So... I know we'll get into the, the, the meat and potatoes of what we both think about this film. There's a, a big clash of people's views on this, on this particular film. One more thing, too, is that it's uh, heavily drawn from comic book source material. But two particular comics. It seems like Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns and another one, The Death of Superman story, where they kind of combine uh, those two pieces together. So we'll talk a little bit about that when we go, when we go through the plot. Uh, but that sets the stage, I think, for our discussions today because even though this is about comic books and and batmans and supermans fighting there is some nuke stuff in it not a whole lot but enough worth talking about because it certainly got my uh creative uh critical juices flowing 
when I saw it on the screen for the first time. All right, so let's get into the plot discussion here. Uh, as always, spoiler alert if you haven't seen this movie yet, uh, we're going to get into the details of it, talk about the ending, all of that stuff. So uh, if you were hoping to see this movie unvarnished uh, and, un and undisturbed, make sure you go stop this podcast, pause it, go over to your iTunes, watch it. I think it's on HBO streaming right now. Check it out, then come back here. Uh, and let's listen to Joel uh, run us through the plot. Yeah, so like Tim said, this in in one sense was a, a clear follow-up to First Man of Steel. It relatively picks up right after the Man of Steel narrative wraps up. You know, you start to see what was Bruce Wayne's perspective as Man of Steel's uh, time period, I guess, was, was, was going on. So the, the movie picks up where Zod has been defeated. You have all of a sudden this new celebrity superhero on the block. Uh, the world is trying to figure out, well, I mean, now that we have this godlike character, what does that mean for the world? And, you know, there are all these references to people rethinking politics and religion and, and all that stuff. And very clearly and very early on, the movie sets up a conflict with Bruce Wayne, Batman, who seeing the Superman arrive on the scene, Batman starts to see Superman not just as a hero, but potentially the downfall or the death of the entire planet mm. uh, as someone who basically can't be killed. Superman, can we trust him? Exactly. And then there's also a personal element that they add where one of the buildings and, you know, I, I thought this was, I don't, I don't know if it was genius or if them trying to make the, the best out of a, a true criticism. But mm -hmm. in Man of Steel, there was a big criticism Tim, I think you had this comment early on, like right after we saw the movie Man of Steel years ago, that in the end fight scene, they seem to take on this gratuitous destruction of Metropolis to the point where everyone online seemed to be asking, why would he continue to pull him around Metropolis and destroying whole buildings? You saw these skyscrapers falling down and very 9-11-esque type collapses mm -hmm. he's like why don't why don't you just take him out to the the country you know out to the cornfields where you grew up and you know well and get him out of population centers it's like he's a biohazard just get him out of population areas and i agree yeah. the movie the movie here does a good job of kind of retconning that problem and turning it into something like oh yeah we had planned this a whole narrative time. instrument right. right exactly and that's maybe so why I batman doesn't trust superman because of all the violence that took place right Right. So all of a sudden, you know, Batman or Bruce Wayne saw one of Wayne Enterprises buildings destroyed. And so he's got a vendetta against Superman because of the innocent people who died from his companies. You see the Wayne Enterprises logo, you know, destroyed. And so. But before that, I, one of my favorite jokes people have made about this movie is that Bruce Wayne's employees are so loyal to him that in the midst of this like international incident of superheroes fighting and buildings exploding they're still working on the yep they're still working on their tps reports until the boss calls and says you know what take an early day right you know morgan freeman he's just hanging out you know <laughs> somewhere like floor 17 or something you know he's building a new jumpsuit or flotation device i don't know uh -huh. who knows he, he came up with a lot of cool stuff and speaking of a lot of cool stuff so batman i'm just gonna call him batman because that's faster than bruce wayne batman superman you know he, he starts to see superman as a clear threat he starts brainstorming how he's going to confront i think in the early on early period he's not saying i gotta kill superman but it's this is an irreconcilable conflict uh -huh. and I, I gotta i have to understand how to confront that and address it because um, he, he he's just too scared about the fate of humanity. Sure, which, Batman. You know, Batman comes from the perspective of this is um, the world is awful, 
bad things happen. The only way you can deal with these problems is uh, by punching them. It's kind of his general philosophy and also scare criminals to death. Yeah. Well, and it's like matches the tone of the movie. I felt where it's uh, if he has enough power to be uncontrollably evil, like to the point where he can't be stopped, then he will necessarily become that. Mm-hmm. Like it's a very, I don't want to say cynical, but you know, it's a very pessimistic view on someone with that much power, you know, cannot help but become the, the villain. And it's, and in some ways it almost, they use some of the language that people talk about the risk of nuclear use from, from an accidental level, whether or not, you know, there might be a signal that makes it look like there's an incoming attack and then you respond by shooting your weapons and it turns out, oh shoot, it was, it was a mistake. Yeah, and there's the idea that well, it's it's a, only a, like a zero point zero zero one percent chance, but because the impact is worldwide extinction, it's too big right. of a risk. It's eventually mathematically going to happen. The same thing with Superman. Yeah, exactly. Batman begins basically building his own weaponry and his own strategy to take on Superman if he does have to confront him. All the while, there's the Superman character of Lex Luthor. Do they do they say Luthor or Luthor in the movie? I'm trying to remember because I've seen some people pronounce it Luthor, and I always hate it. I don't well, know why. I think the uh, the senator that's in the movie is from the south, uh, and she says Luthor because like, she's got Luth- the Luthor. Luthor, but other other people might call him Luthor, but he's supposed to be. Um, you know, he's a, he's, he's a brilliant yeah. guy, kind of a little bit like, uh, like a, like a Zuckerberg, Elon Musk type, uh, who's a little too smart for his own good. And too much money. Too much money. And he seems to be someone who, for some reason, I never really understood this either, why he doesn't like Superman. But he doesn't like Superman. He doesn't like superheroes. He doesn't like any of this stuff. Probably similar to Batman, the idea of, of there being too much power that he doesn't have or... Can't can't do anything about. He's not a fan of Superman. Yeah, I always felt that this was like Snyder just relying too much on the bad evil villain. Clearly, I have to try to kill the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the heroes. It's easier to rely on that as opposed to building up a lot of storyline. Um, so so we have Luthor or Luther who is basically trying to scheme. You don't know exactly what uh, for a little while. Ultimately, in the movie, just to kind of cut through the the rest of the the plot a little bit and move forward, he basically trick Superman and, and Batman into fighting each other by kidnapping Superman's mom and basically saying, you know, if you don't bring me Batman's head on a stick, I'll kill your mom. And, you know, for Superman, fastest way to get him to do something is basically go after the main females in his life. Uh, and not only, his mean, and not only his mother, but, you know, played by Diane Lane, which we all know yeah. you're a big Diane Lane fan. I'm sure you would, you would kill Batman for <laughs> Diane Lane's support. In, in a heartbeat. I mean, Diane Lane, I mean... Which is great. Um, <laughs> so rather than kind of trying to talk this rationally out, Batman and Superman just kind of start to go at it after some epic stare downs. You'd think they could just take 30 seconds and actually talk about it. But no, they just look at each other and then go at each other. Well, he's, he, Batman's uh, the world's greatest detective, not the, the world's greatest orator. Right, exactly. It's like, just write an email. You know, sometimes you, you just, <laughs> if you're not good at person-to-person communication, write an email, maybe tweet at him. What if he did? What if he used the bat signal and then he just like wrote the letters out and then yeah. beamed it up on the clouds? That might or, do it. Anyway, or do, yeah, use use the, uh, the the bat plane to do skywriting, yeah. or just do emojis. That was like the original one of the original emojis, right? Mm-hmm. The bat signal. So I, I don't know how to <laughs> use emojis. So that's very really clear from that statement. Uh, so uh, they're they're fighting. Batman acquires kryptonite. He builds his suit to incorporate kryptonite. So that's kryptonite's, how Bat- kryptonite's Superman's one one weakness. 
Yep, uh, which is material from his home planet of Krypton, which in, in on the planet Earth is actually detrimental, mm-hmm. well, like radiation almost, uh, to Superman. Uh, they're, they're fighting it out. Uh, ultimately, you have Luther who unveils his strategy to take Zod's body, and he basically transforms it into what we know from the comic book world as Doomsday, which in the comic books was a very mysterious character, at least when he first literally jumped onto the Mm -hmm. scene. Uh, He was kind of this nameless, mysterious figure who just arrived on planet Earth and just started causing doomsday, and that led to the death of Superman and all that stuff. Basically, you have this giant, powerful creature. I don't think they actually call him Doomsday in the movie. They just kind of... The monster. I I think at some point uh, Lex Luthor says, he's your Doomsday. Oh, okay, there you go. And then you hear an air horn in the background. It's like, that's the guy's name. Right. <laughs> um, well, it's so, the same thing. Uh, same thing. Like, I, don't, I don't know if they ever really call Superman Superman. They always call him, you know, the Superman or the even, yeah. even Batman's referred to as the Bat or Batman. Batman. No one ever has right. just names. Like, that seems like something you do in the Marvel Universe. You know, right. they have, hey, like, you're Iron Man. Let's I'm, call you Iron Man. Yeah, or, or uh, I'm Ant-Man. And they make fun of the fact that his name is Ant-Man. Right. Th- this one, it's, they like to jump around on it. Yeah, I feel like with this movie, they kept trying to Nolanize things a mm-hmm. little bit. Can't call him Batman, gotta call him the Bat. And what I don't know what they're gonna do with Wonder Woman. They're, someone's gonna be like, "Wow, you're quite a Wonder, comma woman," and that's just <laughs> that's just where it comes from. Right, and that's it. They never name them ever again. Batman and Superman kind of put away their differences when they realize they've been played by Lex Luthor, and they're saying, "We gotta work together." Uh, Superman ends up taking Doomsday. I feel like every Marvel movie uh, has done this as well. The common comic book movie trope, I guess. By grabbing Doomsday and basically shooting him or flying him out into space and just just pushing him and pushing him out farther into space. It's at this point where the United States, because it's always the United States who responds to global conflicts. It's not the international community. Yeah, the Russians aren't just looking at him being like, oh, this is entertaining. Get, yeah. get, get the get the popcorn. I imagine you might have some movies adjusting that perspective, perhaps uh, in the next couple of years. But that aside, the president makes a uh, you know the decision that he, he didn't want to make that you know we have them far enough away from population centers. <laughs> Different that, than the first movie, yeah. Right. Finally got the hint. He, he got his notes from the first movie. We can launch a nuclear strike at the creature. And so you see the scene, which, Tim, I know you're going to go through in more detail. But generally speaking, they launch an ICBM at Superman and Doomsday as they're kind of floating in space. Giant explosion. Batman down on Earth is like, oh, no, what's happened? And you see basically Doomsday fall to Earth. Superman doesn't fall to Earth quite yet because he's rendered unconscious. Uh, We find, as always happens, the sunlight, uh, the energy from the sun uh, slowly but surely starts to rehabilitate him. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, he wakes up, comes back down to Earth. They kind of work together, not to go into the detail, but basically they get some additional kryptonite, and then they use that to uh, to ultimately kill Doomsday because they realize he can't be hurt unless there's kryptonite, just to kind of like short-circuit the, the ending because after the nuclear blast, who's really caring what's going on? Yeah, that's that's really the, that's really the climax of the movie. I mean, Tim got up to walk out of the theater after the nuclear bomb went off. He's yeah. like, I'm good. I'm good. You know, for, for as much as I don't really like this movie, it's also a movie that I've, uh, for some reason, have seen quite a lot recently. I saw it once in the theater. Then I saw it with you. Then I saw it again at home with my wife to be like, 
okay, maybe it would need one more viewpoint on this from someone that's not a comic book fan. You just wanted to hate watch it. <laughs> For a movie I don't like, I've seen four times, which is, I think, more than I've seen or anything else that I like. And just think, like, Snyder, he's like, you may hate the movie. He's like, I'm getting paid every time you watch <laughs> yeah. that movie. So you just keep on hate watching it. Darn it. Uh, well, I'm going to get my revenge uh, by nitpicking his movie, which I'm going to do right now. So the main nuclear scene, like you talked about, uh, yeah, for the film is the scene where Superman and Doomsday get nuked in space by a missile. I'll go through a little bit of the detail of this, but we get a scene after uh, Doomsday and Superman are in space where a military general says, Looks like he's taking it into space. We can go straight to Key Red, Mr. President. Not yet. Crazy? They're high enough that we can nuke them with no casualties, sir. One casualty, Mr. President. Superman. God have mercy on us all. He is hot. He is hot. Redbirds are armed to deploy, sir. Fire at will. Three, two, one. You cut to three military guys and what appears to be army fatigues uh, running past a, a blast door that is uh, slamming shut. Then you have the army guys turn a key, say that the red birds are armed to deploy. The president says, fire at will. And then they turn the key. The missile goes up out of what appears to be a silo. I uh, can't really tell where. It's like blocked by trees. Couldn't see if it was a, a silo on the ground or maybe it was a submarine. I, I think it was a ground-based silo. The missile fires right into space. You see the classic missiles separating into two parts, which is to show, you know, that we're in outer space now. Um, <laughs> it separates. The the missile is this the traditional bullet-shaped thing. The round front of the, the top of the missile hits a direct hit on these two moving targets. I mean, that's space. impressive. Very, that's impressive very impressive technology. Doomsday, for some reason, falls back down to Earth, despite the fact that there was a, a nuclear bomb that went off between him and Earth. You would think that that would push him away from Earth, but he's doomsday. So he doesn't follow the rules of physics. Superman, because of plot, floats in space and doesn't fall back down or get shot out into I, I'm space. Gonna, I'm going to use that for future movies when I'm trying to explain like an incomprehensible thing that happens. Like, wait, wait, so he did what now? He's like, oh, because of plot. plot. And then just move on. He's like, oh, okay. Yeah, because of plot. Everybody on Earth, as you mentioned, looks up and sees this gigantic exploding fireball in space and, and everyone's in awe. So that's the scene. And if you can tell from the tone of my voice, it's made some interesting choices for how to portray uh, nuclear weapons. From just the visuals of the little things that they talk about, the fact that, that there's army guys running around that are going to turn the key, those are usually people that are in the U.S. Air Force that are as part of Strategic Command. Their, their army fatigues tend to be blue, or they actually wear these jumpsuits very close to what we see in war games with Michael Madsen and John Spencer. So I wasn't really sure what they were trying to show there, other than just Zack Snyder wanting to create some kind of imagery that people might know about because they've seen something like war games, where there's a key that you turn and there's a blast door. It doesn't do the military any good to have the people that turn the keys in the place that's supposed to be protected against a nuclear blast to be behind the blast door, like not inside the area where you can turn the key. These guys, when they do their shifts, they stay in the air protected area, which is kind of a funny point. So I didn't really understand where they were running from. Like maybe they, they all three of them went and took the bathroom at the exact same time. 
Um, They're on their coffee break. God help us if if the Russians find out what our coffee break schedule is. But I thought it was really funny when they when they run in past the blast door. There's this little sign to the right that's um, out of frame but and kind of fuzzy, but it says something about how past this point the two man concept is mandatory. Yeah. Uh, which I thought was interesting. The idea of the two man concept is mandatory. It doesn't seem like a, a a way you would phrase that. But can I just say? Uh, and I pulled up this image right now. I'm watching it. Uh, fortunately, there's some good YouTube clips where you can kind of <laughs> yeah, we'll put some of that in the show skip. notes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it it reminds me almost of like the nuclear missile silo equivalent of employees must wash their hands. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Oh no, two man concept mandatory. One is something it's like watcher. it's usually referred to as the two man rule, although sometimes that, that gets confused by the two man rule is you need to have the president and say the, the Department of Defense head uh, or the national command the other parts of the national command authority that authorize a launch. But the idea with the two man rule is that there needs to be two people that, that turn the key at the exact same time. Now one thing they do in the movie is the two guys who turn the key are actually right next to each other. They're supposed to be far away so that one person can't turn the key, two keys themselves at the exact same time. Mm-hmm. You, now, I think I, we read articles and we posted about this when we did our War Games episode, is that some people do little tricks with, in their off time, <laughs> they'll take a string and see and the, if they can turn it, you know, tie the, the key over somewhere else and go over back to where the other key is. And if they can turn the key while they're on the other side uh, but you're supposed to do it so that you can you need two people that are separate unless you're stretch armstrong or mr mr fantastic or something where you can turn your arms that far apart mm-hmm. but it looks like in the movie they're sitting right next to each other and turn the key at the exact same time but one thing that is accurate is that the that they turn a key a lot of times you'll see in movies it's a button that people push like you know the nuclear button it's a key you turn and hold for a couple of seconds that confirms launch. Well, I will say it's funny to actually kind of go screenshot by screenshot. If you look at the close up of when they're turning the key, you know, the mm-hmm. you see a lot of like language and signals and arrows, I guess, for like where you turn the key or whatever. Uh, and it looks very like 1970s ish fonts and stuff. But in addition, there's also right above the key that you see the guy turning. If you look closely on the top left-hand side, there's a label that says <laughs> gently. <laughs> there's actual language on the box that says set, code used, etc. And then it's like some guy from like a Staples got a label maker <laughs> and then they put gently under set because they had to make sure people knew, well, when you're going to destroy the world with a nuclear bomb, make sure you set it gently. It's like the song, Killing Me Softly. It's, you know, nuking right. me gently is the <laughs> way they wanted to do it. Because the fact that it wasn't built into the the console itself and that it was a label, it must have been like some guy like Silo Commander Jerry put the key in too hard and broke right. the, and, and broke the system and it's Jerry, you know, you know you know the procedures. When you want to nuke something, you got to be a little gentle about it. There's about a 6-minute time span in 1964 where our entire nuclear arsenal was rendered helpless because Jerry had turned the key too fast, broke the key in the lock and we couldn't even fire a nuclear weapon. Too enthusiastic for his own good. Fortunately, we've used a label. Henceforth, gently. <laughs> but let's get into some of the, the individual things here and not just keep making fun of the, the visuals here. The U.S. fires what appears to be a land-based ICBM armed with a nuclear warhead to hit Superman and Doomsday as they're fighting in space. So not only is this missile like one of the fastest I've ever seen on screen, uh, because this thing goes from 
wherever the missile was at, which I assume wasn't right outside of Metropolis, uh, but it goes from wherever it is and hits this moving target in space within a matter of seconds. You know, kudos to the missile program there. <laughs> As we talked about a lot of times in previous episodes, ICBMs do not follow a path that's non-ballistic. So it's kind of like a bullet. Once you fire a bullet, it doesn't make course correction, unless you're in that Angelina Jolie wanted movie where you can curve bullets as you're firing them. You set a missile and it goes up into space, and that's pretty much as the direction that it's firing from the ground determines where it's going to land, because it's like lobbing a softball while playing catch with someone. Uh, it doesn't make much course correction. The individual re-entry vehicles, the objects that hold the warhead that travel from the from inside space down to Earth, they look like ice cream cones, as we mentioned. Uh, those will make slight adjustments in their course. Um, they'll take a picture of the stars and to make sure they're on the right path. And then they'll use air jets or some other mechanisms to spin a little bit differently so that they come down. But most of our ICBMs, pretty much all of them, don't make course corrections. Um, so the idea of hitting a moving target in outer space is not something that a, a traditional ICBM can do. Now, I am willing to suspend disbelief a little bit here um, by thinking that maybe after the last battle of, of Superman, the Zod versus Superman battle from the last movie, that they created some kind of ICBM that is heat-seeking, that has a nuke on it, that can travel into space in case they can get people out into space, and they can come up with some sort of object like that um but just people that watch this movie they, there's no mention in the movie that this is something that's different than our usual traditional icbm force so i want to make sure that people that watch this film don't think that these missiles can do that they follow a particular path and they're not fired directly into space we have weapons that are anti-satellite weapons or we have anti-ballistic missile technology these uh, sm3 rockets that are heat seeking that use ground-based radar things like that but none of them are nuclear. Uh, we don't use them for any of those purposes. Uh, so I, that was one thing that always gets me uh, when I see a movie. Because most of the time, ICBMs are fired at stationary locations. Something like a missile silo in another country. Or, uh, if you want to get you know grotesque about it, uh, a, a civilian center. Like a city. And cities don't tend to move very much once you build them. Uh, unless, I guess, you're talking about the... I don't know if you how much you read Superman comics, but the city of Kandor, that little that city that uh, Brainiac, when he's fighting Superman, shrinks down to like the size of a a small vase object, and Superman just, just keep going, Tim. Superman <laughs> takes that little city, and he always wants to try to make it bigger again, but he can't, and it's a big regret for him. That's a city you can move around, but most of the time, you can't do that. I also love that the missile explodes directly on target. Not even close by. I think it like hits Doomsday in the back and then explodes. So, again, kudos to the Missileers. They should get all get bonuses uh, come Christmas time. So the second thing uh, is that the, the film does the little Hollywood trick where the nuclear uh, warheads uh, that are traveling through space look like those bulky ICBMs and not like ice cream cones, as we already mentioned. And I think there's a reason for this. And hear, hear me out, Joel. You know, Zack mm -hmm. Schneider likes to take images that he likes from comic books, whether it be... 300, Watchmen, or now Batman and Superman stuff, and he likes to take mm -hmm. that image and just translate it onto the, the screen. And he's right. actually pretty good at that. The imagery right. that he does in these films are, are pretty fantastic. 
And then in Dark Knight Returns, that Frank Miller written Batman story from the 80s, which is, it's, pre- it's pretty good. It's very dark, uh, gritty, kind of sometimes hard to read. But in that comic book, there's a scene where Superman gets nuked, but it's in a different context. So in the comic book, the reason why Batman fights Superman is similar to what the movie starts to do, where it's about a difference of ideology between Batman and Superman. But the reason is because in the comic book, Superman is essentially a stooge for the president who looks like Ronald Reagan. He basically does whatever the president asks him to, including blowing up a Soviet uh, military base in a country like Grenada. And the the Soviets are, well, hey, we don't like the fact that the Americans have this Uberman uh, that can just go around and kill people. So we're going to nuke a U.S. military installation and see what happens. This missile is this gigantic Soviet missile. And it doesn't fly through space, but it flies kind of like a cruise missile and to go uh, hit this target. And Superman hears about it, goes and tries to stop it. And just as he's about to get it into space, it explodes. And it turns out the whole thing was a trick because the Soviet Union knew he was going to try to stop it. And it's a special weapon. It's a weapon that is designed to to block out the sun, to cause extra EMP damage and radiation. It's not a traditional nuclear weapon. So that imagery of of Superman like pushing a rocket away uh, and all of that comes directly from the page, but in a completely different context. He's not fighting Doomsday. He's not even fighting Batman at that point. But Superman, the imagery of Superman getting nuked and then floating in space waiting for something to charge him up, that kind of is drawn directly from... The Dark Knight comic, although in the comic book, instead of using the sun because it's blocked out by this special Russian anti-Superman nuclear weapon, he draws sun-based radiation from sunflowers and plants. If you didn't know, one another one of Superman's powers is he can draw energy from plants. That's how he does. It. I don't think that would would have looked that good on the uh, on the silver screen. Um, <laughs> but that was that. What I think is interesting. Why? The movie decides to show uh, the nuclear bomb attack and all that, not from what it would realistically look based on our world, but it's very close to what the comic book source material imagery is. But one thing that the movie doesn't take into account, which the comic book does, is the EMP effects, the electromagnetic pulse. Because especially a nuclear bomb that goes off in space over a civilian population like that, you would see massive disruptions of electronic equipment. You would have blackouts from power grids, the military systems, if they're not hardened against an EMP. And if you want, remember, you can listen to our uh, episode on Broken Arrow. Uh, I think it's our fourth episode of the podcast where we go into detail about EMPs and what happens. There should have been an EMP effect, and there isn't in the movie. In the comic book, big chunks of the United States military and civilian populations are out in in a blackout. And it's a bigger deal because it basically means that the United States military can't determine if the Russians are going to attack us again with another nuclear strike. So it, it causes more tension um, for the for the Ronald Reagan-like president. Wait, so, so Tim, I, I had a question about this. Mm-hmm. Um, with an explosion in space or in the upper atmosphere, I, I can't remember if they actually say how high up they are or anything like that or if the, the screen shows it, but, I mean, how would a nuclear explosion look differently you know, in all the movies we've seen, we talked about this in the Terminator episode, how, you know, those images have kind of influenced pop culture's depiction of nuclear weapons generally. you got to have the mushroom cloud. You know, that's our s- signal. Oh, yep, we're talking about nuclear weapons. Here, you don't really have that. You have kind of a general explosion. 
even in like movies like Star Wars and stuff like that, you have kind of like a big explosion generally like with the Death Star that somewhat reminds you of like a big nuclear type explosion with like a uh, a ring of fire kind of extending mm-hmm. out. You didn't have it was kind of an understated explosion. I, I actually would have expected a much bigger a bigger depiction, I guess, from Snyder. But I mean, do we know? Do we, I mean, obviously, we probably don't have video of a nuclear explosion in space to actually draw from. Well, we we actually, we actually do. We actually do. We actually do. The U.S. Had, did a, a series of high altitude testing, and I'll, I'll link to some of the videos about that. But we did do some of those because we wanted to see what the effects would be against U.S. Uh, satellites in space, against ground targets. They wanted to see how EMP effects would uh, would, would hit some of the U.S. Uh, military arsenal and civilian centers and things like that so we do have some imagery of it now what the movie does is a little bit different now there isn't obviously there there isn't a a mushroom cloud because a mushroom cloud is generated through a lot of different forces but it's largely heat uh and air and in like when you see the mushroom cloud it's because of the fact that there's strong heated air in the center of the explosion that rises upwards and carries with it the atmosphere that it toasted, the ground uh, debris, and all of those things, it draws all that stuff upward because as the the heat rises from the explosion, air also, wind and all those other forces draws upwards as well and carries everything up and then it kind of balloons into a cloud once it gets high enough that the heat starts to dissipate and that's what creates the mushroom cloud uh, visual. But if you fire a nuclear weapon high enough above the ground, you actually don't get a mushroom cloud because there isn't that ground area to be able to draw debris upwards. You essentially get a giant fireball. So you would think about it as the explosions. If if a bomb is designed to be symmetrical in terms of its explosion, it creates this giant circular fireball, more or less. So when you would think about a bomb going off in space, you don't, because it's in space, you don't get the fireball. The fireball occurs because atmosphere, you know, the air, oxygen, oxygen, things like that burn. Now there, there's 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 a force. There's radiation that gets shot out. And what traditionally happens is the X-rays and gamma rays and all of that that gets shot out when uh, nuclear fission and fusion occur. But there's no air, and it's you know maybe it, it's thin. Could be thin up there, not totally vacuum of space. So you would see some kind of an explosion. It's it really depends, like you said, of how high up they are for the explosion to take place. If the bomb were to go off in the atmosphere, but very, very high, you would see a fireball like that. Um, And then eventually that debris would all come down onto people that live there. That's something they don't really talk about in the movie is that all that heat and uh, would come down, but there wouldn't be fallout because fallout is when you mix fission products that have with debris like buildings or dirt and things like that. Now, who knows how, I think it was pretty cloudy that night because it's always cloudy in Gotham. It's always depressing in Gotham, but really nice in Metropolis. I don't know how in the movie they're supposed to be like next door neighbors right across the river, but only one of them gets the good weather. So so I'm curious though, deep space. Yeah. Let's let's Nolanize it and get into like interstellar type space travel. If you're far enough away to view it, but complete vacuum of space, mm-hmm. would would you just see like the the pieces of metal of the the device kind of just like disappear and Otherwise, and you would see, it'd yeah. just be invisible. And there would be like, a, there would be a shock wave. There would be not really a shock wave because you need air for a shock wave, but there would be yeah. a force. Right. In, our, in our episode on the Martian, uh, our friend Gabe came on as our guest host. Well, we talked about Project Orion. 
uh, which was a an idea of using 2,000 small nuclear bombs to launch gigantic spacecraft out of the Earth's atmosphere and travel through space, basically fire a bomb behind a, a rocket ship and that use the expanding force from that to propel the spaceship forward. And they would just keep mm-hmm. doing a bunch of those to keep it going. So there's definitely a force generated, but there isn't... So basically you'll never see a movie detonating a, a nuclear bomb in deep space because it would be... It would look kind of boring. It would be completely anticlimactic. It wouldn't look so good. Some people have said, well, how do you, how would a nuclear bomb even go off in space if there's no oxygen to burn? But the conventional explosives that are as part of the nuclear bomb warhead package uh, don't require oxygen to burn. The, the fission and uh, fusion activity of a nuclear bomb doesn't require oxygen. It requires the components that are in it. So there would still be an explosion, and it would do some damage, but it wouldn't look the way we would think a nuclear bomb would look. I would guess this movie, the bomb that exploded over Metropolis slash Gotham, was high altitude, but not in the vacuum of space. That's fair. It's it's just kind of interesting that it seems like they say they're so far away, and it, I mean Superman floats while he's after he was exploded and kind of floats around a little bit, which makes me think that he was at least somewhere kind of far into outer space. Well, I have a theory because when I was seeing got? that, I was thinking, well, I, you because I, I immediately, when I saw that scene, it took me back actually to the Avengers where Iron Man takes the nuclear bomb through the the opening, the portal mm-hmm. or whatever, and he like sends a nuclear bomb and then he's just sitting there and then he slowly starts to fall back. So I wonder, it appears there's this comic book zone of atmosphere Mm. that maybe like Superman was just a little further beyond that. Yeah, I guess so. But it just seems like he floats around. I think for more than the Marvel movie, there's definitely, I think, some scenes in Man of Steel where he's floating in space and uses his super hearing to just listen for some sort of uh, a cat stuck in a tree or a genocide (laughs) happening somewhere. You know, one of yep. those things to go solve. I think he even does versions of that in the Christopher Reeves Superman, where he's floating in space before he goes wow. to then start to do something Turn. later on. But then he turns back time, right? Turns back time. Yep. Uh, <laughs> so the, I think the last thing I'll, I'll want to kind of nitpick here, the United States just launched a nuclear weapon into space, and no other country in the world freaks out about this. Russia, China, um, don't call up. At least, you know, maybe they do and we don't see it. Uh, but there's no freak out there because all of a sudden there's a nuclear missile, which they can identify, they can track coming up out of space. And who knows what path it's going to follow uh, before they start to freak out about it. So hopefully the Russians and the Chinese were given a heads up. So question on that, Tim. And I, I, I thought of this by your comment, but also because I've been reading, I'm a fan of Ender's Game mm-hmm. franchise. And I've been reading some of the the books that are supposed to be prequels. So Ender's Game was about kind of later into a battle with aliens, us kind of taking the fight to the aliens. And so these later books actually tell the original war with the aliens where the humans just barely won. In the initial conflict, the aliens, I don't want to give too much away, but they Mm -hmm. land in a particular country, an entire book, because there are three books, but like one entire book almost is dedicated to basically the beginning like weeks of that war and it almost entirely focuses not so much on the actual battle with the aliens but it actually focuses on like the paranoia of all the various countries Hmm. and the conflict 
where there's there are aliens pouring into on, onto planet Earth, killing people and destroying things. But the U.S. and other countries, I'll give it away. It's they're in China. Yeah. So they land in China. We're, it's a spoiler podcast. So you know. <laughs> so all so there's all this like uh, internet chatter and like controversy over at what point the other countries can step in to help defeat the aliens or. Hmm. To what extent do you have to respect the original country? It's like, oh, they landed on in our country, so we get to deal with them. But it's clearly like a global issue. Now, did, and so did, did you see? This. Did you see Arrival came out last year? I or, did early part yes. of this year. So that that was my favorite movie of last year, and they do a lot of that. They yes. don't do that so much in the short story that it's based on, but they do that a lot in the movie, where it's each country has their own approach to dealing with these aliens that land. In various countries, so I, I so think. Do, that, do you think it would kind of go in that direction, or uh, do you think there'd be some kind of immediate uh, attempt at coordination? Because you know, the worry is even if you're talking to a Russia or a China, especially now, mm-hmm. there'd be perhaps even more paranoia of this is some kind of trick, or they're they're trying to hide something else. Or I think that's a great question because it's one of those things where comic books like to focus on just what they need to do to tell the story. That right. they're trying to tell. Like I always think it's funny. I, I, I think back when I was young and we would talk about you know, would, who would win in a fight, Wolverine or Cyclops. And, <laughs> and I was so invested in Cyclops as a character that I would always come up with these ways that, you know, why Cyclops would win. And my friend uh, would always talk about why Wolverine would win. But really, now that I'm an adult man, um, I can see that <laughs> the person who would win would be whoever the, the story necessitates to win. Because that's just how it happens. Whoever needed to win would win that battle, or no one would win because they can't have because plot. Because plot. So I think um, in the story here, they just essentially creates a scenario where there's a quick battle. Maybe the Russians and the Chinese don't know yet that there's this gigantic battle taking place. As we see in the movie, everyone, the CNN is is a real thing in in this comic book world, and Anderson Cooper is reporting the Doomsday fight, and maybe eventually, if Doomsday beat the U.S. military there and started making his way over to somewhere else. Maybe the Russians and the Chinese would say, well, what about our nukes? We could try our nukes. Our nukes are better. And then do their own thing there. If you're in another country and, you know, it's like maybe there's a country out there that would say, oh, yeah, we're, we're nuking this guy at the moment. Maybe they already have a plan, you know, mm-hmm. in some file drawer, some global comic book type villain shows up. It's just like nuke him. Just first first line item. It's not six or seven. Well, in the Marvel movies, there's this World Security Council that's kind of like a United Nations for superheroes that manage their activities. There's a little bit of that. I don't know if there's an equivalent in the DC comic book universe, because it definitely seems something Superman doesn't just solve problems and deal with things on U.S. soil. He deals with stuff all around the world. Mm-hmm. The idea that he would go then to the the U.S. Senate for a Senate hearing and this is the forum where all of these debates will take place, it seems more likely what he would do, like he does in Superman 4, Quest for Peace, where he goes to the United Nations and gives his speech about why I'm going to right now disarm every nuclear weapon in the world. I'm going to throw them at the sun. So don't make any more of these things. And he would make his case there as opposed to some subcommittee hearing in the U.S. Senate. I have to imagine, comic book villains aside... That there's some file drawer somewhere that's got like the actual plan for mm-hmm. arrival happening, right? Oh, I'm sure. If, I, they, 
if they haven't already, just to like you know bring out some uh, paranoia and conspiracy theorists because why not? <laughs> well, a couple of years ago, the CDC had a a blog post about they said that they had a a plan to deal with zombie like infestations. And I think that was mostly just a, a a way to to reach the young people uh, about zombies. In uh, in the you said that like a seventy year old like, and to the, reach the to reach the young people. to reach those young kids and their zombie stories. Uh, and mostly, you know, talk about the CDC's general mission of, of health and uh, right. what, and what a viral outbreak would look like, whether it be most likely like SARS or um, swine flu or something like that. I, I think that there are plans out there for everything because military people have a lot of time on their hands. Uh, I'm sure we have plans for all that kind of stuff. I don't know if they're any good, but I'm sure that they're there. The one thing I do want to have a conversation with you about, and this is very nerdy, so if people don't want to talk about listen to this, they should just skip ahead on their all iTunes I never really understood why, at some point, the sun can recharge Superman's Kryptonian cells to make him stronger, but a nuclear bomb depletes his cells and makes him weak until the sun recharges him. Because what a nuclear bomb does, in terms of fission and fusion, is essentially the same energy released from the sun. We talk about why the the bomb harnesses the power of the sun. So I never really understood that. So my question then is, is if Superman approaches the sun, like if he flies towards the sun, will he get stronger and stronger and stronger until he just melts? How far away does he need to be from the sun to recharge his batteries? Uh, I never really understood that. Like if he goes into the center of the sun, will he be super strong or will he be weak? Understood yeah, that. And they kind of like swipe it away with like a line of dialogue in Man of Steel where Russell Crowe is superman's father says he'll uh feed off the radiation or something like that and then he'll be stronger on their planet yeah yeah he'll be like a god to them or whatever but i'm sure there's some wiki out there somewhere that someone's put together meticulously documenting how the solar radiation and kryptonian radiation or whatever have different chemical properties and well i'm sure someone will send us a a strongly (laughs) worded email correcting a tweet so superman was one of my favorite characters uh growing up for comic books and he was always fascinating because his superpowers changed all the time depending on whatever he needed you have his originally superman couldn't fly he just jumped really far and pretty high that's why when he says you know he can leap a building in a single bound it's because he used to jump he didn't fly but then they're like ah let's make him fly and then he had all these other powers, like oh yeah, Superman can shoot lasers now. Now in the in the in the Superman movies, he can take the S off of his chest and throw it at someone, and it temporarily makes them stunned. I guess like there's all these like weird powers. Oh yeah, he can fly so fast that he can turn back time. I could turn back time. All of these little things, Superman seems like he has the ability to do, and it, you never really know the full extent of his powers. So I guess at some point, he he has the ability to take energy away from plants he can recharge his batteries because plot tim because plot because plot but one other thing about the plot that i found really fascinating and this is not really necessarily nuclear related but we talked a little bit about kryptonite and kryptonite is superman's weakness it glows green kind of like what you would the stereotypical portrayal of plutonium or radioactive material glowing green although most of the time there's no green that glows but that's okay. Everything looks like The Simpsons with radiation. You have the kryptonite, which kind of operates a little bit, like you said, like a radioactive material. Lex Luthor wants to take the kryptonite that he finds somewhere else, like somewhere in the Pacific, and he wants to bring it to the United States. So he needs an import license 
to do so. But because it's dangerous, hazardous material, he needs that import license and the U.S. Senate won't give it. Well, those those things about dual-use technologies, import licenses, those are some of the problems that people have about WMD technologies and materials all the time. So I thought that was really fascinating when you have material, you have the wanting to export type of high tech machinery that can be used for one industrial purpose, but can also be used to enrich uranium in some capacity. You need import export licenses for all those things. Uh, all that stuff, I, I found that was a kind of a neat little uh, extra twist that, that gets put into it. That's a little real world example. But that's all the nuke stuff that I have. So let's talk a little bit about the movie. Again, this movie's been talked about ad nauseum about how some people don't like it and some people do. But Joel, why don't you uh, get us started about the, the the actual movie discussion, what we call our our parking lot discussion. After we've seen the movie, we go head out in the parking lot and we and we chat about it. Yeah, I, I mean, okay, I mean, what, Tim and I have talked about this at length over the last several years. I had very, I, I in general, I very little invested in Superman. I respect that franchise as as a comic book. Clearly, an important figure in like comic books and in American history, and in American history, I guess. But uh, I, I have no problem seeing like someone take a different interpretation, making it more serious, making it campier, mm-hmm. whatever. I, I almost look at this movie kind of through the same lens that I did the original Transformers, mm-hmm. but I, I thought Transformers was even more well done for Transformers. Absolutely, yeah. Like. It's not Shawshank Redemption, but to be Transformers, I thought it was like a home run. Get busy living or get busy transforming. <laughs> transforming. But it was the same lens as far as I'm going into this with the expectation that it's Batman versus Superman. But if someone did a movie about the Punisher, the Punisher was a very key comic book hero in my comic book reading uh, tenure. Mm-hmm. So if someone did a movie about Punisher, and there have been a number of movies about the Punisher, I would have very particular expectations, concerns, fears, hopes, dreams. Most of the time, those dreams are dashed because almost entirely they're horrible, with the exception of the new Daredevil show. Oh, that was pretty, that was pretty they, good. Yeah. Thought they did pretty well. Thought the second half of that season was eh. But the, the Punisher section, I thought, was very well done for the, the direction they took. Sure. And, and, you have a, and everybody knows you have a high bar for your vigilante justice. A very high bar for vigilante justice where people are just getting killed left and right. So yeah. I went into it with like the same kind of Transformers attitude of like, show me what you got. Of course, with Superman, you have like the almost Dragon Ball Z-esque fighting uh, force. Oh, you push me into the roadway and the, the, the asphalt gets pushed back or like the energy ball type, mm. you know, punching that you saw in the Matrix and other things. I, I enjoyed that spectacle in Man of Steel. All we needed was spiky blonde hair and like an orange jumpsuit uh, <laughs> or whatever. I mean, I enjoyed Man of Steel. I, I probably like Man of Steel. Well, I know I, I like Man of Steel better than Batman v Superman just because I thought, mm. I don't know, I, I thought Man of Steel had a little more story. I mean, they were trying to create their version of the franchise and st- so that there was a fair amount of development they would have to do character-wise and right. universe setting. Whereas Batman versus Superman clearly seemed, looking back on it after like a year or two of, of it being out, it almost seemed like a rushed introduction movie, even more so than Man of Steel to a certain extent. Oh, I, like, I would I would agree with that 100%. It seems like Batman versus Superman tried to take the entirety of, so, you know, for the Avengers movies, for the Marvel 
there was a, mm-hmm. you know, a great number of movies before Avengers to build all right. the various characters. This one was said, no, nah, we don't want to do that. We just want to, the next movie right. is, is this Justice League thing. So we're going to have everything all at once. Right, yeah, we did Man of Steel to set up Superman, making sure that people still wanted to see Superman, because that was a question. Like, everyone saw Superman Returns. I don't think anyone wants to watch Superman Returns again. <laughs> I mean, do you remember Kevin Spacey's in that? Yeah. Like, and uh, isn't Cal Penn? Isn't Cal, yeah, Cal Penn's in it. Uh, Superman maybe may or may not have a kid at the end of it. I mean, I don't know. So, I, you know, they said, okay, people will see Superman. We, we know Lanize it. So the mainstream, the young people mm-hmm. will go see it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it like perfect observation. It, you know, they basically just went straight to the Avengers. But I still enjoyed it. I enjoyed the spectacle. Would I watch it again? Uh, if I, you know, could choose any movie? Probably not. You don't want to keep hate watching it like I did? But I, I just, yeah. <laughs> But I just feel your capacity for hate watching, Tim, is impressive. Hmm. I just think there are other movies where I would get more like entertainment value out mm. of the hate watch. Like if I was on a plane and that was the only movie to watch and it was free and available, I'd probably watch it again. Yeah, but, I, don't, I don't. For me, even though I don't like this movie, uh, I don't think it's so bad. It's not a a good bad movie. It's not a bad movie that you enjoy watching. Because it's so bad. Right, right. It's not like a horrible B-movie or something. I mean, I would put it in the same category as like one of the later Transformers movies. Mm-hmm. Like if it's if it's on and I've, for whatever reason, I'm stuck watching that TV and that's the only thing on. Like if I'm getting my oil changed from my car and it's on, you know, I'll watch it. I thought there were still good performances and stuff like that. But uh, I don't know if I completely agreed with the, the direction they took with Lex Luthor. I will commend Snyder for the thing that you perhaps were criticizing him for earlier. And that is, I I do believe he's very talented in being able to faithfully recreate at least the imagery of Uh lots of comic books where comic books are, they are the imagery. So to be able to kind of translate that credibly into cinema, I feel like that's a feat in and of itself, like 300. And there's a theatricality to comic books and specific comic, comic books like 300 that are not, necessarily easy to translate you know you, you could do 300 and it lo- it'll look like spartacus with kirk douglas sure know? so i mean it takes a lot of effort to do that people focus too much on his weaknesses hmm. and you know i thought this was a movie where his strengths were on display just as much as his weaknesses so i i would say that i agree with the premise that you're setting up but my problem with this film that he does such a good job and he focuses so much on these visual translations of page to screen that the problem is is that he just wants to it seems a little bit like they just want to have these visuals on the screen and it doesn't really matter the context where all these things takes place because I think in comic books, you know, battles aren't just cool things on the page. They they're supposed to be about ideas. They're supposed to be about stories that are being told with weight behind them with some sort of uh, you know motivating factors for the various characters involved, and the fights right. are symbolic representations of that. What I enjoyed so much about The Dark Knight Returns was this idea of like why Batman would fight Superman. They're friends. Why would they fight each other? There is a, the reason is there's an ideological conflict. Superman is someone who thinks that he you know he knows he's good. He knows he was raised in the United States in in Kansas, and he's a good guy, and he has everyone's best intentions, and he wants to be he wants to do good for the world, and he thinks that he can do those things. And then he hears about the bat as his vigilante, and you know he says, "Don't do this 
vigilante stuff anymore. Go away. I got this. And then you have Batman who, his entire idea is that he felt powerless when he was young and his parents were killed. And he then tries to go out in the world and force it to do what he wants. He doesn't like people who have this unlimited power that he can't check. He doesn't trust anyone. Real ideological conflict about who can have power, what motivates someone. All those ideas are there, which would lead to Batman versus Superman having a conflict. But in the movie, it ends up, it starts with that idea. And then because he wants to just visually have the fight between Batman versus Superman, and he also wants to have Doomsday, and he wants to have the visuals of the death of Superman, and then he also Mm -hmm. wants to have all these other things happen, it ends up becoming this diluted trick that Superman gets tricked into fighting Batman. Batman gets tricked into fighting Superman. Batman's supposed right. to be the world's best, best detective, and he gets tricked any number of well, ways by Lex Luthor. And then, the resu- right. and then the resolution, we didn't talk about this because it wasn't relevant to the nuke stuff, but the resolution of the fact that Batman and Superman, their mothers are both named Martha. And I guess Superman, as he's about to die, says, they have Martha... And Batman goes, oh, why did you say that name? And Lois Lane fortunately comes in and says, that's his mother. And then that's when Batman, I guess, realizes that Superman is a real person who has a mother and is a, has an investment in the future of humanity. I mean, but you have to do so much work for that movie to get there that right. all the rest of the story, even though there's some cool scenes, like the scenes with Batman fighting in the warehouse, I thought were fantastic. Um, most mm. of the Batman stuff is, is good. Um this whole thing drawn together and then huge chunks of this movie I think are really boring. Make it so I don't yeah. I didn't really it didn't it didn't work for me. Yeah. Well I, I do remember walking out and uh, as far as like rushed, convoluted like uh story aggregation, thinking basically they had relegated Doomsday to the Bane yeah, yeah. character in Batman and Robin, where Oh, we we've had one villain. Now we gotta have two. Oh, now we gotta have three. So uh, let's throw in Bane, and uh, he's a henchman, and kind of just break stuff, which is funny and almost fitting because Bane and Doomsday, if I remember my comic book history, kind of came around the same time at like peak comic book in the nineties. Yeah, it wasn't I think wasn't Superman's death first, and then people liked that storyline. So then. The Bane storyline came afterwards because people like, let's see all of our um, superheroes go through some sort of crises. I'd, I'd have to go back and check. I don't know the exact timeline. But I do remember that it came out around the time because that's when, you know, everyone's coming out with these crazy storylines of, you know, people dying. And uh, they'd have like four special edition covers of the same individual comic book. Mm-hmm. And they'd they before they're sold, they'd immediately be like $15 each or something like that. And, I still have a uh, bunch of those. <laughs> right. I just thought it was funny where, you know, ultimately they're just supposed to be harsh, brutal, like physical challenges to mm-hmm. ultimately challenge the hero who up to that point seems almost invincible. Um, well, I think that's so that's interesting. You talk about the Bane and Doomsday as unstoppable forces and essentially just challenges for our superheroes because that's a lot of what the movie treats nuclear weapons as which are essentially humans' version of superheroes, in a way. It's humanity's uh, last-ditch effort. It's the most powerful tool that humans have to deal with these problems is, unfortunately, a nuclear weapon. So, well, and what, wasn't it, uh, was it Iron Man where they say you're walking weapons of mass destruction? Or? Yeah, exactly. So 
those are the concepts like nuclear weapons are things that our world has in terms of if we had aliens invading or if there was a doomsday running around, this is what we would right. use. And if it doesn't work, you know, if, if it can't kill the bad guys, then we need to rely on the superheroes. So in a weird way, it, it almost becomes humans are weak. Superman needs to be the one to save us, or I guess Batman able to outsmart everything and all of that. But I think it is an interesting thing that that's what nukes often are used for. This is the most powerful tool we have. Oh my gosh, it didn't work. Now what are we going to do? And it raises the stakes and it tells that story. And that's the function that exists as a plot and how also people um, that watch this movie would then think in terms of nuclear weapons being... Uh, a tool in the U.S. arsenal today or any other country's arsenal that have them. These are these ultimate weapons. They're the things you go to you know, when you want to turn it to 11, turn the dial to 11. So that, that brings up a question. That was the case, maybe probably still now somewhat, but 20 years ago is especially the case when it was post-Cold War. Mm-hmm. You had all those 90s action movies with nuclear weapons where loose nukes, dirty bombs – uh, rogue uh, submarine commanders, you know, all that kind of stuff, because people were like, we didn't have an enemy. Mm-hmm. And so it was, what do we not know about nuclear weapons? Now, today, at least in cinema, Tim, I mean, you've seen this where people are saying that, like, with all the Marvel comic book movies, we kind of glaze over when we see a city destroyed because, like, oh, yeah, we've seen that happen a thousand times. Are we at a point where nuclear weapons don't have the luster that they did as far as destruction goes that you got to, like, amp it up even more now? I think they have become very uh, perfunctory. They're things that serve a plot tool. But when I remember when I watched that scene the first time in the theater in Batman vs Superman where he gets nuked, my my brain was first thinking, "Oh, that's cool. That's like the comic book." But then my second thought was, "Oh, that just went away really quickly. All this served was <laughs> it was just the bomb went off and it was oh wow, Doomsday can't be killed by this. So I guess we're screwed." And it just went through the motions of it, but right. it wasn't like that weight behind the idea like, holy crud, we just nuked something in space. We haven't used nuclear bombs since, you know, 1945. <laughs> this decision got made. Uh, what happens? That to, escalated hap- quickly. Yeah, exactly. So, like, what's the consequences of that? So, again, hopefully, right. and once Justice League gets started, I think, later this year or next year, um, hopefully there's some reference to the fact, like, yeah, Metropolis just hasn't been the same since that radiation fell on it top of it. the guy. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know if there's going to be anything like that. Then they retconned it from Man of Steel about destruction and things like that. I think the Marvel movies do a better job of that with Captain America Civil War about the consequences of superheroes left unchecked. But we'll get into that when we do our Avengers episode at some point in the future. You're right. In a lot of movies, nuclear weapons, um, they don't really have that draw. Visually, if they're used in population centers, so like when Some of All Fears came out, I know that was very visceral because Baltimore gets blown up. Um, or Terminator 2 in the in the early 90s, there was, there was that visual was still very strong. But I haven't seen a, a nuclear bomb go off in a movie recently that was more than just, oh, okay. Like these, these things used yeah. to be really big deals the day after uh, in 1983, I think, uh, when that came out. It was a TV movie. But in the, the visual of the nuclear bomb going off isn't really – if you watch it today, it's hilarious. The, the special effects and everything. But at the time, it freaked people out. It freaked out Ronald Reagan to the point of him thinking about nuclear weapons are, are a danger. Yeah, I don't know if, what you would have to do these days. Well, but so my theory on that is it raises it, – it's hard to raise the stakes. And we've talked this about in I think in other episodes where nuclear weapons are used to quickly raise the stakes because mm-hmm. you know, you're talking about global annihilation or whatever. 
So I think the the way that directors like that's why a, a Jason Bourne movie I feel is like still good hmm. or um, some of the other movies where really there's not a lot of stakes. I mean, it's like an individual and he's being hunted, but it's it's not like the world is crumbling, you know, compared to comic book movies where literally the whole world is going to be destroyed. Right. It's not like a James Bond movie trying to stop a nuclear bomb from going off or something along right, those lines. Right. It's just so yeah. the way that thrillers have succeeded, I think, is by recognizing that you can't just amp it to 11 to 12 because mm. someone's going to put it to 13 to 14. You got to invest in the story. You can raise the stakes in any movie just to, just to make a Diane Lane reference uh, for <laughs> sake of this podcast. I remember when I saw Must Love Dogs. Oh, okay. Unfaithful. <laughs> Must Love Dogs. Uh, I remember watching Unfaithful and I, I like it was it was on TV or whatever and I was like, oh, I heard this movie was good. And I, I expected nothing of it other than like some like domestic conflict or whatever. And then again, I don't want to give too much away, but there's that actual crime that's committed. And I felt like there's a lot of like tension and the stakes are really high in that movie, mm-hmm. even though it's just these two people. And, you know, the person that she cheats on, on her husband with because the director and the writer, the, the screenplay and everything invests in the characters. So even though it's a small scale conflict, it'll be a nuclear bomb for that person's life mm. to really like rub this in and really overextend this discussion. If no, that I, makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. I think you're right in terms of the better, you know, entertaining options these days. Nuclear mm-hmm. weapons maybe don't do that for people. And now the next question is, what does that mean in terms of people's relationship, the publics, the moviegoers, to nuclear weapons? If it becomes a fatigue thing, like everyone talks about comic book fatigue, like we're over comic book movies now because it's just the same stuff over and over again. If you just keep seeing, if nuclear weapons just becomes rote, the idea of an exploding the city and all these things, like, yeah, these are things that can happen. It would be crazy if it were to happen, right? But no one really, that danger is not really there. Does that change our relationship uh, with how we see when the when there's a debate in the United States Congress about how much to fund the next generation of bombers or ICBM technology, or when there's a debate yeah. about whether or not the United States should shift from targeting uh, military installations, because if you target you know the other country's nuclear force, you need more bombs because there's more targets. If you just target cities and you rely on mutually assured destruction, you don't need as many of them. But then there's a moral question, like all of these debates, or should the president be allowed to fire a nuclear weapon whenever they want. Right now, there's a debate in the U.S. Congress. That there, I think Ed, Ed Markey, a senator from uh, Massachusetts, and a few other uh, co-sponsors have put forward a bill that would remove the president's ability to launch a nuclear weapon as a first strike option without an authorization of war by Congress. Hmm. The president would have the ability to fire back if someone were to hit us, but it tries okay. to remove the ability for the president to launch a weapon. But if, if, if nuclear weapons are become rote and everyone's just like, ah, oh, it's the same thing we see all the time, it's almost boring, Does that is that good or bad for how the public handles nuclear weapons? Because actual, these, actual, actual, nuclear actual nuclear issues. Because the, the public should have a role in these discussions. You have a, a large group of people today that are all about trying to ban nuclear weapons from like the grassroots level, trying mm-hmm. to force a vote in the United Nations on whether or not nuclear weapons should be illegal because they cause indiscriminate damage and all those other debates and arguments. So there is a, a passionate debate. I don't really know. I, I think I need to think more about um, this. And I think the podcast can keep bringing this question up. A lot of the times how people access these issues are through pop culture. And they watch a movie like that. Oh, yeah. Superman, 
And they not only do they think, oh, well, I guess we can just use a nuclear weapon to hit a moving target in space, and this is visually what it looks like, and this is how the decision process would look like and all of that, but also just the idea of, well, we just use nuclear weapons as a first a first response to big problems, <laughs> and that's okay. This is, these, these are what these weapons are for, as opposed to though, like that kind of thinking was how what we thought about when we first got nuclear weapons. Nuclear weapons were just big bombs. They weren't right. categorically different. And then eventually we've evolved our thinking into thinking that these things are different. Those are the weapons that are in movies about world-ending yeah. conflicts. Exactly. So there's a change of thinking there, and a lot of that comes from movies like War Games, Doctor Strangelove. Well, I will say, I mean, I think the the movies in the immediate aftermath of the Cold War, right? Like all those 90s action movies that we mm-hmm. love to talk about. And <laughs> I feel like we've been very good in our self-restraint and not just having... Ten not, movies in a row that are all the submarine movies, or not going to that '90s well over and over again. Yeah, but I want to. I want to. But that that was, you know, that was leveraging to some extent, or you know, in some different ways, kernels of ideas of truth about like loose nukes, a rogue military person, mm-hmm. the loose kind of Russian Federation and their ability to oversee their nuclear stockpiles. You know, all those. Real world headlines taken to the nth degree. I think 9-11 kind of supplanted yeah. what is our existential threat that we're dealing with. Now you have kind of the, the existential threat as this amorphous specter of an organization or, or, or a type of attack. So it's not a nuclear bomb could blow me up at any moment. It's I could be at some football game or you know some other mm-hmm. activity and... It's a, a weapon of mass destruction because we kind of link all the attacks together. So may, maybe that is a double-edged sword where it takes our attention away from nuclear issues, where we may need concerted effort, like on international collaboration. On the other hand, maybe it lets cooler heads prevail hmm. to some extent where, you know, when we are talking about these issues, we're not just dealing with a bunch of movies that said, oh, nuclear bombs are going to do this, that, or the other. It, maybe it creates some space to have a more rational conversation. There's all, if these are decisions made by just elites, which I think in some ways probably that's a good way of doing it. People that, that spend part of their life, and I would say for my, for my, for my side of these things, who spend a lot of money in, on their grad de- degree program, uh, that those are a set of people that are, are the first take at these things. But eh, even then, like we have a way of looking at stuff, but people are easily able to follow in the same, you know, how we used to think about these things is how we should think about them in the future. But really, these things change and evolve and there constantly needs new ideas and the public has a role in checking these things because ultimately, if nuclear weapons are used, sure, DC is going to get blown up and, you know, you and I are going to get our our toast. But it's innocent people all around the world that will be affected. So they have an inherent responsibility and interest to to be involved in these things. Zack Snyder, you beautiful man. You stir our souls. Let's let's uh let's talk about him and this movie and let's give ourselves a rating. Uh we normally do a scale from 1 to 5, and we like to change the rating up to make sure that it's tailored exactly for the film that we have here. So the one that I've come up with here is 1 to 5 mothers named Martha. <laughs> Because one mother named Martha is just the normal amount. No big deal. One Martha, Some people, Martha. Exactly. But when you get up to five Marthas, I think with five mothers named Martha, nothing is impossible. You can accomplish mm. anything in the world. You can stop violence. Uh, I mean, look, one stopped a battle between superheroes. 
Imagine if Wonder Woman's mother is named Martha and Aquaman's mother's name is Martha and, and the Flash's mother or aunt or something is named Martha. They could like, really I'm come together. Say, I'm just going to say, we had five Marthas that, that included, you know, Martha Kent, Martha Wayne. Mm-hmm. I think the world would probably be a pretty decent place. Sure. I feel like a lot of the issues we got, they could take care of. What I think the next uh, Justice League movie is called Justice League colon... Rise of the Five Marthas. <laughs> exactly. So I don't know what you would rate this thing. Uh, I would probably give this movie two Marthas. Um, okay. There are some Interesting. Things, there are some things I like about this film. Uh, Wonder Woman is... Uh, I'm actually kind of excited for the Wonder Woman movie that's going to come out later this year. Yep. Uh, I think you and I will see that movie. Hopefully there's some nuke stuff in it so we can talk about it. Um, but I think there's some of that stuff is good. But the rest of the things that I already talked about, the plot, the uh, and even just the pacing of the film, uh, I didn't really enjoy. And they also turned Superman again. This, okay, this is coming back to my investment in Superman. They turn <laughs> they they turn him from this way we normally understand Superman to hopeful kind of this figure. hopeful figure to like a brooding, sad. I'm sad. No one likes me, but I can't use my words to communicate. Character. Yeah. He's just not very interesting, and it hurts me because. They also wanted to do the death of Superman, but the entire movie they talk about why no one likes Superman. Everyone thinks that he's this bad guy, and we as as moviegoers, at least myself, I was never invested. I don't like this Superman as a character. So when he dies and there's this sad funeral around the world why everybody likes Superman again, I just go, eh. Yeah. I don't like. I mean, I like Superman as a character, but I don't like the one that I saw on the screen. So I don't care that he died, but it doesn't matter anyways because all of us he's because he's alive again. That's where character development comes in. Like, so, how, so how many Marthas do you give it, given all that? Uh, well, it's funny. I was actually only going to give it one and a half Marthas. Oh, this is interesting. A Martha and a half. I wonder if our, if our conversation changed you. Because when, when I first saw this movie with you, I was upset at myself uh, because you were like, oh, that wasn't too bad. And I was like, no, get angry. <laughs> Feel the dark side. Why are you well, as maybe, bad about this as me? I, I mean, maybe the the half is my my ambivalence because I can I can take it or leave it. Like I said, I, I had nothing invested in it, but I also recognize it's not that valuable, right? I mean, interesting. Well, then I guess I'm surprised then that I might that my Marthas outrate your Marthas. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, we are out of five Marthas, right? So I mean, mm-hmm. I feel like a three would be a a a good film, right? Sure. So like two is kind of uh, room for improvement. All right, maybe it's 1.75 more for this. Okay. I don't know. But yeah, I mean, I, I feel like there are some good parts of it, but I guess the big thing for me is I, I feel like I don't need to watch it again. I, I think for me, if I've because I've seen this movie four times now uh, and possibly we'll see it again at some point in the future, I can't say it's anything less than two just to maintain my own uh, sanity while I keep watching a, a, one, a one Martha movie. Ridiculous. What What is a one Martha movie? Hmm. hmm. Well, I think that was uh, that G.I. Joe retaliation. I, I will say, just to like tee it up, I do want a direct comparison when we do the Superman movie where he denukes the, the world. Mm-hmm. I want a comparison to that and G.I. Joe. Let's do it. Yeah. All right. In terms of things that I would recommend, uh, if people are interested in these topics, I've got two things. Uh, so I always like to recommend some follow-up reading. One is just read the Dark Knight Returns comic book. Um, the comic book is, is pretty fascinating. You can get a collection of it now, uh, just as one piece instead of the individual comics. There's a cartoon movie that I think you can even get on Netflix. 
that's uh, it's. I think it's a better telling of the Batman versus Superman fight story. I think I'd recommend checking out that as opposed to watching Batman versus Superman, the, the Zack Snyder version. Uh, so I'd recommend checking that out. And second, and I'll link to this in our show notes, there's a great post on the blog War is Boring, which has a lot of great stories about military uh, developments. But there's a great blog post about what the military in real life would do to design a system and a plan of attack to kill Superman in real life. And their conclusion is ultimately a combination of kryptonite gas and six megatons of nuclear weapons all at the exact same time. (laughs) I think they're talking about like sacrificing Lois Lane because that's how you get Superman out to a desert once Superman x-rays the floor to see if there's any sort of bombs or anything. The nuclear weapons would be triggered by an x-ray hitting it and that's what would blow everything up end of story that's a, that's the plan in the file cabinet exactly that they, they filed away so i recommended some stuff joel but what about you as the, the our everyday man uh non-nuclear expert anything you recommend our listeners to to check out next sure well maybe you know to take the the moviegoer approach to this because i know we've been bashing snyder a lot we did say some positive thing i would recommend people go out and take a look at 300 watch that movie I think that was an instance where the the visual strengths of Snyder come through and they really bring the comic book to life. Um, it's not a he didn't try to reimagine it. You know, he tried to put the comic book on the screen, which I thought was very successfully done. So to balance out the uh, the, the not so great movies, uh, maybe try 300. I think 300 works because the storyline is so one note and so <laughs> focused and not and, but that's fine this movie is exactly it's unrelenting. it's unrelenting it's perfect for that note and he hits it and i like his take Zack snyder's take on um i think it's dawn of the dead one mm-hmm. of the he, remake of the romero movies he did a good job in that film but i'm not going to not watch the next <laughs> justice league movie he's got my 15 dollars Thanks for listening to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes or want to tell us what we got wrong, either nuke or comic book-wise, there are a couple ways you can contact the show. You can go on Facebook at facebook.com slash supercriticalpodcast. You can reach me on Twitter at nuclearpodcast. Email supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can check out our website, supercriticalpodcast.com. I hope you enjoyed the program. If you did, uh, please uh, subscribe on iTunes, leave a review, or wherever else you listen to your uh, podcast. We'd love to hear your feedback. And um, Joel, thanks again for, for coming back. I know we talked over here on Skype, so the audio quality is not as good as our usual episodes, but it allows us to talk when we want to. Until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer. And Joel, because of plot. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we're bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one. Oh, okay. Uh,